Hey, this is Bob Nalbandian from the Shockwaves Hard Radio Podcast, the Shockwave Skull Sessions Podcast, and the Shockwaves Videocast. And you are tuned in to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, and welcome to Focus on Metal, episode 300. Holy crap. Yeah, I'm, st- I'm still here, too. <laughs> <laughs> when I, it's funny. When did I start? Probably in the 70s or 80-something, maybe. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't either. Just been clicking by. Yeah. <laughs> we started off as uh, a lot of discussion, and now it's uh, a, a lot of discussion with other people. Otherwise yeah. <laughs> <laughs> known as interviews. Yeah. But uh, we try to be discussive. But uh, yeah, 300 uh so uh kind of a concept that richie put together and i'm actually amazed we actually got all the interviews together in time to get this thing on the road well okay i started i came up with this idea a little while ago um of course master puppets was it's probably for metallica fans it's the the holy grail of the band I know they had bigger albums after, like Justice and, and the Black Album, and probably load and them sold more than, yeah. than it. But when I think Metallica fans, by and large, think that it's not only their best album; it's probably one of the best metal albums of all time. Because uh-huh. if you look at Martin Popoff's five top five hundred albums, I think that's number one. Um, it's you know a lot of people think it's probably the best trash album of all time by far. It's either that or maybe Rust or Rain and Blood, but yeah. it's a toss-up. But yeah. that, everyone thinks, yeah, Master of Puppets. Um, and it's 30 years old. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was thinking, okay, you know, we, we don't we talk about Metallica a little bit on the show. Um, let's try and do something a little bit more elaborate yeah. on it to celebrate that album because that album is big-time game-changer. Yeah. Not only for the band, but I think for the genre in, in general. Um, Metallica came into their own, I think, on that album. They definitely got more notice on it. Um, they blew up on the on on the Justice album. I think that's when they went to playing arenas on that. Um, but at, when just when Puppets came out, they, they didn't. They still hadn't done videos. Right. Um, there wasn't that much out there to about right. visually to yeah. see the band. So you either had the the vinyl or right. you saw them live, and that was the only way you could really. Yeah. get any experience of them yeah i mean they did st- you know they were out with oz for uh you know for the tour behind this and stuff so that gave them a lot of exposure was really breaking them as well too so i mean all that really you know a turning point album for them definitely, yeah you know so i decided right i, I i'm not going to get any of the band on no chance yeah right so i didn't even go there so i i i contacted a great friend of the show joel mcgyver and i asked him first off and he great no problem whatsoever yeah so of course joel done the justice for all book about the band and he'd spoken to um fleming rasmussen and some of these guys so yeah. i hit up joel and i said look any way i can contact him you know would you have any contact info for him so i contacted fleming and fleming said he'd no problem coming on but yeah. the only problem with fleming is he's in denmark yeah a little right? scheduling issues yeah. yeah and so that means that weekdays are out yeah uh, weekends he was doing a lot of traveling uh-huh. and uh, luckily enough we got him about two weeks ago and we spent about 
35 minutes talking to him. Yeah. And I, I'd be honest with you, I'm talking to a guy who, who's produced Master of Fucking Puppets, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable album. And he's, you'll hear it in the interview, you know, we're asking him specifics about it and he's checking up stuff and all that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, holy Jesus. And um, so we, we spoke to Fleming first. Yeah. Then we spoke to Joel. And originally, um, Michael Wagner, who mixed the album, right. he said he'd come on. But he still says he'll come on, but he, he he's doing mad hours at the moment. Yeah. And we could have waited maybe another six to eight weeks to get Michael on. and But we want, we said we were going to try to do something for right. 300. Right. So I decided, right, who else will I try and get on? So I was thinking, right, I'll try to get someone on from the Bay Area who was around at that time yeah. when Metallica did Ride and right. Kill 'Em All and, and Cliff was around. and So I said, right, Andy Galian, I'll try and get him on. Because we've never had anyone from Death Angel on, which right. is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a, you know, bug for us, really. We're like, Jesus Christ, you know, we love all these bands and there's certain bands we've never had anyone on and, and they're one of them. Yeah. So I hit up Andy and Andy said, hell yeah, I'll come on and talk Master of Puppets. So yeah. we spoke to Joel and then last last Sunday yeah. and then right after that we spoke to Andy right. and um, Andy was great he a lot of one of the things you'll find in this is lots of Cliff stories yeah. lots of great stories about Cliff in this and, and about the band at the time because they're not the same band now they're multi multi-millionaires oh, yeah. and yeah. all that but back then they were you know they were just this hungry up and coming band in their early 20s right. and you know, even Joel says at one point in the interview, like we're talking, he's talking about puppets, and um, you know, they made that album and they're like twenty three, twenty four years old, yeah. And yeah. it's like, holy Jesus, you know, how how could a band that young make music that good? And you know, we get into all of that right. with, with all of them, but yeah. it was great chat. Oh yeah, yeah. So good concept. Uh, amazed we pulled it all together in basically two weeks. So. Well, in the end, yeah, we got it all done. Yeah. But um, everyone was great. And, uh, you know, this is our special on Master of Puppets, and I hope everyone enjoys it. Yeah, I think, uh, like I said, good concept. I think it was great. And, uh, you know, just there's a lot of stuff, obviously, a lot of activities happening around, uh, you know, Master this year. And, uh, you know, great book that uh, we talked a little bit about with Joel that uh, that came out by Matt Taylor as well. So great card cover book and, uh, you know. Again, that's another thing that's you know pretty awesome. Yeah, well put together book, and and maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll work back with Joel and see about getting Matt on and talk about his putting that together and stuff. And yeah, we can try you know, possibility maybe put that together with Michael's interview or something. Yeah, we, we could do that. <laughs> so uh, so the other thing is this: we have you know a lot of a lot of audio for this, so we figured uh, instead of making this massively long, uh, you know, two hour plus type thing for 300 although it'd be very cool uh we decided we would do it in nice smaller bite-sized chunks so it's going to be 300 and 301 will be all about master of puppets i think that's a good yeah. good good way to go the original plan was to have three guys on 20 minute interviews yeah never but works, never works. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah so anyways that's that is the plan and uh so uh I don't know, let's uh why don't we just kick it off? Mm-hmm. 
Hello, hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, Joel, how are you doing? Uh, yeah, we're doing really well, thank you. Yeah, just uh, setting up the computer. Hang on. No problem. Hey, Joel, how are you doing, man? Good, great. Well, you guys, as always, sound like you're in the next room. It's all, it's always amazing to me how this works. Yeah, open the door over there. We're hiding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. How's life? Very good. Very good. Great to be talking to you again. Well, look, thanks. I, I always appreciate it, guys, when you, when you fit me in. I do appreciate it. So thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. No problem. In fact, I quoted you on last week's show with your, oh. with your quote on the back of uh, the L.A. metal scene explodes, too. So... I thought, damn, Joel's quote can't sum it up any better than that. So, <laughs> so I actually haven't seen the finished product yet. What does my quote say? I remember sending it over, but uh, uh, I, I'm sure which one they used. Unmissable for anyone interested in this chaotic and influential era in American music. Uh, well, that sums it up perfectly. I think Bob has done a fantastic job with those that, that DVD series. Yeah. Um, and dug out some really, really interesting people who, who aren't normally interviewed. Yep. So uh, it, it's it's great to see him uh, doing a good job. Yeah. Have you had a show? Have you ever spoken to Bob Nalbandian on your show? Oh yeah, Bob's an old friend of mine. So I've um, actually uh, spoken to him a, a lot of different times. In fact, uh, I even yeah. show up on the credits in the first the first. Oh, yeah. So. good. Yeah, he's a legend. Yeah, there's only one Nalbandian. There is <laughs> only one that's only one person that sounds like Bob too. So. <laughs> yeah. I had this riotous. Uh, Weekend with him uh, at Nam in LA a couple of years ago, and uh, he, I, I had a hotel room booked, and he ended up there was a spare bed in there, so he ended up sleeping in it because he didn't have a room. And um, he uh, brought back a, um, a stripper friend of his who slept in the other bedroom in the, in the thing. It was, it was uh, there's nothing more scurrilous to say than that. He, uh, a, a pleasant lady came and stayed in the next room. That was it. But uh, it was a funny weekend. We had, we had a while. Yeah. So so Joel. We'll get into the, what's coming up with you first, and then uh, we'll just talk a little bit about a lot about Master of Puppets and maybe some of the new Metallica. So you have the Thunderbook coming out in November, um, as, yeah. far, as far as I know. So you can get that on the Thunder website, I believe. Yes, you can. And there's actually four books coming out, so I can run you through them. Oh, good. But uh, the um, So the first book that's coming out is uh, Thunder's official biography. So it's... It's it's by me, but it's we we kind of co well no I I was going to say like, we co-wrote it no I I wrote it interviewing them, um, and uh, it's the first time I've done <clears throat> it's the second time I've done an authorized biography the first one was Cannibal Court. Uh the other autobiographies I've written are slightly different because I'm the co-writer there but um, anyway that that's a, that's a detail so yeah I worked with Thunder we did it fairly quickly I think I spent about four months interviewing those guys last year and we. Um, put together an 80,000 word book in oral history format. In other words, it's just their quotes. It's, it's not me uh, editorializing. It's just them in, in, in running through their career in, in quotations. And uh, it was amazing. I mean, that story, those guys, I, what appeals to me is bands who go through um, adversity and face it down and come out the other side smiling. And, you know, the fact is they played Wembley Arena this year. They're just about to announce another large tour. They're as popular now as they ever were uh, 25 years after, their, uh, after they emerged. And, um, you know, the music they played was never fashionable, and yet it attracted a crowd because it was honest and it was cool and it made you want to jump around. And it's, it's still like that now. And, and, and they're, they're all in their mid-50s now, those guys, but they still rock really, really well. They play amazingly well. Um, they look good. They write, they write great music, and they have a kind of cottage industry, as all successful bands have to have nowadays where they handle their own merch, their own social media, their own tours. They, they manage themselves. Um, 
so that book is called Giving the Game Away after one of their albums because it does reveal a lot of stuff about in, the, in their history. There was a, an episode where they fired their bass player, whose nickname was Snake, mm. uh, in uh, 92, I think it was, uh, 91, probably. And uh, we went deep into that story because there were various conflicting accounts of how that had happened. And that was never revealed on the record. So now for the first time it is. Um, and we got loads of interesting people to talk. Rod Smallwood gave me a great interview. Um, Andy Taylor of Duran Duran, um, the guitar player who used to be in Duran Duran, he did the forward and because he produced Thunder's best-known album, um, Backstreet Symphony. And uh, so it, it was just funny. Lots of people chipped in. Lots of crazy stories. So that's the first one, right? And that's coming out shortly. There is a launch uh, in November at a literary festival called Louder Than Words. So anybody, And that's in Manchester. So anybody in the Manchester area... Uh, in November, I think it's November the 12th, who uh, is interested in sort of rock books, there's this really killer festival that's just devoted to to, to books about rock music, and uh, or not, not rock, but books about music. And um, so we are launching it there, they're doing an acoustic set, and I am interviewing them on stage, uh, and then we're all going to drink a load of beer um, with the fan club. That event sold out in 30 minutes, apparently. Um, they've got an absolutely rabid set of fans um, who are going to be there. So that's the first book. <clears throat> I'll try not to drone on about this all night, but the second book is a, a, a Black Sabbath book. It's, uh, I was going to say it's just an unauthorized book. I mean, that doesn't make it bad. I've, I've done Sabbath books before. This one's a nice one. It's called, I think it's called The Complete History of Black Sabbath, What Evil Lurks, and it's coming out in America. Um, and that is just a cool Sabbath story, and it, it collates all the interviews I've ever done with those guys, um, along with some cool pictures. So that's coming out as well fairly soon. Um then uh, I have done, and I think I mentioned this to you guys before, I don't know if it made it into the actual podcast, but I, I, I've been working with uh, a guy called Woody Woodmansey, who was the drummer in The Spiders from Mars uh, between 1971 and 1973. Um, uh, uh, so he played with David Bowie on The Man Who Sold the World, Aladdin Sane. I'm sorry, Man Who Sold the World, Hunky Dory, uh, Z Stardust and Aladdin Sane. Um, and then went on to play with a load of other bands like Art Garfunkel and all this stuff. Now, all the other members of the Spiders from Mars, Trevor Boulder and uh, Mick Ronson and Bowie himself, of course, are all dead. So Woody's the only guy, the only last, last man standing from that band. Mm. Uh, so his autobiography has been uh, a long time in, 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 the, uh, in the making. We started work on that two, three years ago. Um, and Bowie died, you know, as we were completing it. And... Um, it's uh, all the more important because of that. So that's coming out. It's also being launched, I believe, at the same festival as the Thunder One. And then finally, probably most relevantly for your purposes, is an updated version of my Cliff Burton book. Um, this, uh, the, the book, I think, as you know, came out in about 2011. Um, it's obviously the 30th anniversary of Cliff's death in about two weeks. Um, and the book has a new chapter analyzing his impact and um, also a new um, afterword by Frank Bello of Anthrax. So those are the four books that are coming out. And then I hope we speak again because I think there's going to be five books coming out next year. But we can talk about we can talk about that in the time. You're catching up with Martin Popoff again, Joel. <laughs> I'll never catch that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be that I wouldn't be that foolish to try. Yeah. So and, and of course we'll we'll talk again. Maybe we'll do like we did last year. We'll do a year end wrap up again with you, so you'll be able to to promo those. That would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. So of course, since we last spoke to you, Joel, we've uh, we actually have some new Metallica music, and we've got the new record coming out in I think in November. So what what's your take on the first track you heard? I thought it was okay. I'd give it a seven out of ten. I don't mean to be um, sort of damn it with faint praise, but uh, it's 
I hope it's I hope it's the, a sign of faster, thrashier material than on the last record. Uh, I suspect it won't be. I suspect what we're going to hear is a Death Magnetic Part 2 in the new record. Um, but uh, it reminds me a bit of... Um, was that song called something like Suicide and Redemption on the... Yep. On yeah. the yeah, on the last one, that was that was the one that's a bit thrashier, right? Then, uh, yeah, God, it's so long since I've listened to Death Magnetic. <laughs> um, it reminds me of that, kind of like a sort of a nod to their roots. Um, they had a song on St. Anger as well called Sweet Amber, which sounded a bit like that. Um, and, uh, no, it's good. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I thought it was good. Uh, I liked it. I, I loved the thing on Facebook, which you may have seen, where some studio engineer has changed all the guitar tones to match the uh, the early albums that they did. Did you guys see that? I did hear it, yeah. They put the Justice mix and the Ride the Lightning mix and yeah, it's interesting. especially the first two because Kill 'Em All has that very scratchy guitar tone yeah. and Ride the Lightning is a much kind of softer sort of far away sound and, he, and, and then you know, all the rest of the albums have their different sound anyway I thought the song was okay um, I, you know it's fine I, I, I have no problem with it and, you know quite catchy what about you guys do you like it? I, I like it it's, um, it's new Metallica I, to be honest with you Joel I didn't think they'd do another record it's been yeah. eight, eight years or nine years or whatever there's no point in them doing another one unless they really want to I think we've all agreed this ages ago, haven't we? I mean, Metallica are about playing live. You know, they, they take that catalogue to the stadiums and they and, and they completely dominate. Does it really matter if they do an album? Does it really matter if they play new stuff? It doesn't really, does it? But uh, it's always an event, isn't it? A new Metallica album is a huge event in all our lives, not least because it's been eight years since the last one. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, we have you on to talk about Master of Puppets that's uh, 30 years yeah. old. Now, yeah. when, when that came out, how big a metalhead were you? Were, were you into that stuff at the time? No, I was listening to uh, Duran Duran and Soft Cell. Seriously. Um, I got into metal right after Puppets, right? Um, so <laughs> I can hear the kind of stunned silence coming. No, coming I, I, was, I, was new, I was more into the Rat and Motley Crue. And uh, like when, I heard, when I heard the heavier stuff like P-Cells and all that, I went like, what, what the fuck is this? This doesn't make any sense to me. So I was, uh, that, that's, I was in a sort of even more unconventional route than that. I was just listening to pop music and rock music. I love the Beatles, you know, I love the Stones. Uh, all the old rock and roll and Deep Purple, actually, some of that kind of stuff. But uh, I was unfamiliar with metal until a friend of mine played me puppets. Um, in, and I remember pretty much exactly when it was. I was 16, so that would be 87. So it was out. So I did hear it, yeah. But but uh, I, I didn't run out and buy it on the first day. I heard it a few, a few months after it came out. And um, that first, uh, the acoustic intro battery just gripped me. And then when the song took off, I, my mind was blown. I thought, what is this? Because I hadn't really heard much metal. I'd heard a ton of music, but not an awful lot of metal, and uh, certainly no thrash. Um, so I took that record away, borrowed it. I taped it, you know, as, as you did, and uh, listened to it endlessly, endlessly, over and over again. And then uh, right after that, I got into Ride the Lightning. Right after that, I got into Rain and Blood, and, and that was the whole metal thing for me, uh, up and running. So, But Puppets, 
I mean, assuming you're looking for some sort of appreciation with me, it, you just cannot deny it. Its presence is immense. Um, it's one of the metal albums for the ages. And in fact, I haven't put it on and sat through it for quite a while because it's in my DNA. You know how you have a record that you've heard so many times? Mm-hmm. You actually don't listen to it that often because you've got every note of it already in your head. You know, um, And then when you do play it again, uh, you're struck by how fresh it is, and uh, that song, does, that, that, that album, sorry, does not age. It, it doesn't date. There's not, a, there's not a thing on it that sounds out of date or cheesy or, or kind of eighties. Um, it, it's flawless that record. Yeah. So when was the first time you saw them live, Joel? Would it have been on maybe on the Justice tour, or would it have been? Yeah, Black album? It was on the Justice tour in Newport, Wales, in uh, November 1988, and I paid seven pound fifty for the ticket. <laughs> uh, we went on a bus. I remember me and three of my mates and. Um, uh, Danzig were supporting, and uh, who I thought were kind of okay-ish. Um, and then Metallica came on, and they started with Black, and yeah, of course they would have done. So the, the intro music rolled, the lights dropped, and it was just an electric moment. And uh, the volume, I had never done, I'd never heard anything like it. I mean, by that point, I'd been to Donington on a couple of big events. Um, so I knew about sort of you know loud metal, but the, the volume in that place was insane. I absolutely loved it. And uh, people were just going nuts all around. I mean, it was a fairly advanced production, as we now know, from Metallica, because they had the, the Justice statue collapsing bit by bit, you know, and stuff like that. And uh, I have a feeling there was a moment when a, a lighting, a bit of the lighting rig slightly failed as well. And um, oh, it was nuts. It was amazing. And I didn't see them after that for a few more years. So I was very, very glad that I got to see them when they were still a relatively, uh, well, they were, well, they weren't new, were they? But they'd been going... Seven years, I guess, by that point. It was nuts. Did you see him on that tour? I think, I I saw, think you, saw, you saw him on the Puppets tour, didn't you? you saw I, him, uh, I didn't. I yeah. saw him on... The first time I saw him was the Black Album. Right. In Dublin. Yeah. Um, yeah. When they played for three hours and they had their video beforehand. I, they actually played a... They played a gig about five minutes from my house uh, huh? in the Top Hat in Dunleary and Anthrax were supporting him. And this was just before I got to know them. And then I, when I actually got the album and I heard Anthrax, I was like... I can't believe I missed them. They were five minutes away from the house and I didn't go. So that was on the Puppets tour, right? Yeah. Yeah, right before Cliff died. Yeah. So, um, that's, uh, that, yeah, that would have been amazing. Yeah, I know, I know Joel. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the Justice Tour was great too. I mean, the, the venue in Newport is not small. Uh, it's probably about as big as the Brixton Academy or whatever in London, but um, that's still pretty small for Metallica. And uh, it was insane. I remember Kirk came out and played as his solo uh, Little Wing by Jimi Hendrix, which is that sort of three-minute piece. Uh, Jason did a solo, which was pretty um, pretty hard to hear because it was just masses of distortion. Um, but it was cool anyway, you know, to see him. It's the only time that you could hear Jason around then because you couldn't hear him on the album. <laughs> That's it, no, no. <laughs> Live, he always had a big presence, didn't he? But uh, believe me, I've talked to that guy so many times about why there's no bass on Justice. And the story's been well told, you know. But yeah. uh, Glad to see him back, by the way, as an odd note. I think last time we spoke, we were wondering where the hell he'd gone. Yeah, he's playing uh, some acoustic shows. He, is, yeah, he said he said that the reason why he didn't continue with his metal project two years ago was that uh, it all went wrong with A, management, and B, touring. And then his mother got ill, that was it. So he needed to withdraw for a while, even though he was right in the middle of a big promotional push. Um, and doing well, actually. You know, he, he, he toured... He'd done some cool stuff, and he'd done some cool live dates and whatever. Um, but then it, all all the logistics went wrong, and he backed off. And then uh, he decided to do some acoustic stuff, which would be pretty cool, I think. Yeah. But anyway, I've interviewed him a few times about. We've talked a lot about uh, about <laughs> his treatment on the on the Justice album. It's still a good album. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, every now and then I'll I'll, I'll find on uh, YouTube the, a version with which bass has been added to, and it does sound quite good. But uh, that was all part of the thing, wasn't it? It was all all a part of Hetfield's massive guitar. You know, it was all part part of the Metallica uh, enigma at the time. Yeah. I thought. Now, now, Joel, when you did the book, the Injustice for All book about Metallica, was was there anything in particular you wanted to learn about that album, because uh, Puppets album? Because the story's been out there for years and years and years about the record. And did you want to put your own twist on it? Was there something in particular you want, maybe new that you wanted to find out about it? Well, the mission with that book was not necessarily to talk about Puppets so much. It was to uh, focus a harsh light of criticism on the stuff post-Black Album, which it did do um, in, in pretty relentless terms, actually. And I think, as I may have explained before, I probably went a little, <laughs> a little bit harsh. But um, but that's, you know, I needed to say that. So, so Puppets, no, the stories are well documented. I subsequently found out some cool stories about that album after I'd written that book, and they went into the Cliff Burton book. So, for example... Um, uh, Cliff playing uh, a solo on Orion that was originally going to be Kirk's, but Kirk couldn't make it to the studio that day, so Cliff did it on bass uh, instead of it being a guitar solo, as was originally intended. Um, other than that, most of the stories have been fairly well told, and indeed, they will be further told in the uh, in the book that's coming out by um, what's the dude's name? Is it Matt Taylor? Something yeah, like that. The one Scott has in his hands. Right. How is it? Uh, actually, it's a, it's actually a really great book. Um, I've about yeah, I thought it started it this morning. I'm about 170 pages in, and yeah. uh, just really well done. And it's really not so much you know Matt writing, but it's just all these you know interview things between fans and yeah. you know their inner circle and all that, and uh, yeah. just really really well done. And and just tons of of great photos that that you've never seen before as well. So um, so far, That's- I'm really liking it. I got. I was. I was messaging um, Matt uh, quite a bit on Facebook recently. We were chatting, and um, he was telling me that it was an exhausting process putting the book together. I mean, he's he's happy and he enjoyed it, but it really it required an awful lot of work to get right. And I believe that you know any any book that uh, Metallica would authorize, um, you have to believe would be would be first class quality, and um, it would and you would want to get it right, wouldn't you? You know, you wouldn't want to do a half hearted job. So I'm sure. I'm sure he worked very hard on it, and I'm looking forward to getting a copy because it looks amazing. Yeah, it it is, and, and it's and it's actually just a really slick book too. I mean, that sucker is heavy. I was I was actually down in the basement, and I just heard like this big thunk on the doorstep, <laughs> and it was the, it was the postman like dropping that thing off. And uh, you know, I'm really glad it exists. Metallica should do more books. I mean, they did that So What book, which was essentially a picture picture book, I think. Um, Stefan Chirazi uh, edited it, I believe, didn't he? And he's a fine, and he's a he's a great guy and a great writer. And no one knows more about Metallica than he does um, because he's close friends with them, you know. Um, but so there's that one and then there's this one by Matt. But so, at some point, I, I would love them to actually just put pen to paper, not take the uh, pictorial approach quite so much and just do a, the whole thing, man, the, the, the absolute whole thing. I think that would be quite a read. I mean, it would take them years to do it properly. Um, this Sabbath book that I've got coming out, someone asked me if it was the ultimate Sabbath book and I said, well... Well, no, because the Ultimate Sabbath book would be a 10-volume, 2-million-word series of books, like a series of encyclopedias, uh, and, and this is not that. But uh, the, the, a band like Metallica deserves that kind of epic treatment, and I hope one day they do it, because, you know, w- which other band has has the presence and has the story like they do. So that's good. Yeah. The interesting thing, too, that Matt did on this one, and I'm still kind of trying to decide whether I liked it or I didn't like it, but the whole thing is essentially prefaced by the kind of a hour by hour of them 
leaving that last concert with Cliff and being on the road and 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 that was mm. interspersed by other events and it just kind of builds up till finally the you know the bus accident in the aftermath and then it switches back and it it really sets an interesting tone for the rest of the book and uh, yeah, I'm still yeah. undecided about whether or not that was the right way to go or not but it it definitely does cast yeah. a whole different way of of reading it well it's an interesting structure you know I, I, when you do these books you have the opportunity to experiment with different um formats you know and uh, the story is 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 uh is a tragedy isn't it in uh, as much as it's a, a story of triumph so i'm not surprised they went with that approach because the you you do need to underline the fact that 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 an amazing person died in a completely pointless way uh, in the middle of the project, or in the middle of the cycle, I suppose we'd say, the puppet cycle, towards the end of it, obviously. But um, interesting. Anyway, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting one of those, and uh, I'm looking forward to reading it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it, it just also, I think, kind of adds to that overall thing that people always wonder about. And the book really does bring it forward a lot more, too, than I think they've ever done in the past, but just how vital that Cliff was to the overall songwriting structure and how he brought them forward through mm. ride up into master. And, and, you know, cause you know that for years they didn't really discuss that that much. Just Cliff was kind of this hallowed figure, but you know, now it's coming more and more, I think to the fore of just how much his eclecticism really added to what they brought forth in master. Yeah. That, you've said it perfectly that I think a, they needed to restate his importance. Um, and, and be people, people are, there's a demand for that. You know, people want to know what he was like. Ray Burton has come forward and been quite um, visible, hasn't he, in recent years? Um, well, and I wish he had been earlier, you know, but uh, he's, he's come out with a lot of good stuff to promote Cliff's memory or maintain Cliff's memory. And there is uh, a huge appreciation for Cliff in a way that there isn't for many musicians. Perhaps there is for John Bonham. Uh, perhaps there is for Randy Rhodes. Actually, that's definitely there is for Randy Rhodes. Yeah. Um, and Bon Scott, you know, people people whose lives were, were lost pointlessly and young. Um, but Metallica just keep getting bigger, and most of those other bands that are, do not. And Metallica just keep getting bigger and bigger. And uh, I think, as so much, so many of their followers are old enough to remember them, at least either Cliff or the Cliff albums with great fondness because they were part of their youth. It's important for people to be able to understand Cliff, and I'm, I'm very glad that Metallica are behind that and making an effort to do that because it shows that they understand their fan base. Yeah. Now, Joel, I don't play an instrument, right? You were obviously big into playing bass. Yeah. When you listen to Cliff to uh, Kill 'Em All, right off to Master of Puppets, and and you're listening to what Cliff is playing, can you mm. definitely s sense that there's a huge growth in his playing, or was he just brilliant from the get go? Uh, his playing ability was already in place by the, by the time Kill 'Em All was recorded. He's playing simple. Those songs are simple on uh, on on Kill 'Em All. They don't need complex bass parts. What he does, and you can find these isolated parts on YouTube if you want to check for yourself. In a song like Whiplash, for example, um, which is just... There's no space for him to elaborate and play, play difficult bass parts because that would spoil the song. It would muddy it up. So all he does is he throws in the odd octave here and there just to kind of show that he's having some fun, I think. Um, the second album, because obviously there's his big solo moments in, in For Whom the Bell Saw and, uh, sorry, Whom the Bell Tolls, and in uh, Call of Cthulhu, where he has that, uh, that big wire pedal moment. Um, and it's not so much that his skills improved, but that his opportunity to use those skills expanded as the music became more progressive. So you would never have had an Orion uh, or, or, or a Lepra Messiah or Damage Incorporated on the first record because they weren't capable of writing that stuff then. Um, he was technically able to do that stuff at that point. 
uh, and I think probably way before that. I mean, if you if you track down Cliff with his previous band Trauma uh, on YouTube, there is an EPK for one of their releases where he is playing a solo that is very much like Anesthesia on the first Metallica record. And um, I interviewed his bass teacher, a guy called his name Steve Steve Doherty. Um, who I think that was for the first time on the record, actually, that Steve had spoken. I managed to track him down somehow. Um, talked to him for the Cliff book, and he said that they had, or rather, he had taught Cliff uh, some elements of Bach, um, classical music, and Cliff had adapted some of that stuff for the anesthesia solo, and he did that in Trauma, and he obviously did that in Metallica. So, from a young age, you know, his bass skills were there. It was more as Metallica progressed that he was able to use them within the songwriting as that, as that expanded and, and evolved. Um, and and on Justice, I'm sure he would have his presence would have been bigger too had he been around to record that record. Right. Um, people often ask me what would have happened after that, and I concur that they would have gone to the, for the simple groove stuff uh, and uh, that they did on the Black Album. But certainly, um, his presence is huge on Justice. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's also interesting, you know, you talk about his skill level back with Trauma and stuff, and going up through Metallica. And of course, back in Trauma, he still had five good fingers on his right hand to actually play with by the time you get to master he really doesn't have a working pinky anymore either and as a you know kind of one of those ultimate finger style basses that's interesting that you actually don't even notice that he doesn't have it anymore well he only ever played with two fingers he wasn't a three finger player um so the, the fact that his pinky wasn't um functioning that well didn't really affect his bass playing um, as you know, what happened was he'd sunk a fish hook by mistake into the tendon in the back of his hand, and that, that had rendered the little finger unable to tuck back up into his palm, which is why you see it dangling down with only his ring finger tucked up. So he has this kind of unique um, uh, positioning for his picking hand. Uh, but but he was a two finger player when he played finger style, um, like Steve Harris. You know, a lot of people think Steve Harris is a three finger bass player, but no, he's two. So I don't think the pinky was an issue, but it's. Um, his girlfriend, uh, Corinne, told me that Cliff taught her to play a bit of bass, and she assumed that you had to have your little finger dangling down because he. So that, so that was how she learned it, which was funny. Yeah, I just I think about accident, and, and it just it kind of makes me cringe. I had actually I cut the the tendon on my my right thumb of my right hand, and you know I, I thought like my playing was done, but fortunately my surgeons, one of them played guitar and one of them played drums, and they were <laughs> like, "Damn it, we are going to get you to play again." So I I got lucky. <laughs> Wow, how did you how did you cut the tendon? I was cutting some vinyl siding, and the knife just left the siding. It went right through my <laughs> my finger, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, this doesn't work anymore. I think I should bandage this up and go to the hospital." <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was pushing uh, an empty glass bottle into a, like a recycling bin, those big big units, and I, I didn't know, but the, the the bin was full of broken glass. So as I pushed the bottle in, a load of broken glass came out. And went right into my palm, my right palm, and uh, I have a giant scar there. It's probably two inches long that they stitched it up, but it, it, it didn't hit the tendons, but it came very, very close. Oh. And that that would have been <laughs> that would have been a bit of a pain. I probably wouldn't have been able to type. That probably would be the end of my career. Yeah. <laughs> so, Joe, Joel, final question for me before we leave you go. Um, yeah. The track on just on justice to live is to die. It's got a call right from Cliff. Did you ever find out when that was written? When he contributed to that song? Uh, the lyrics that he wrote for it. Yeah. Now those are taken from a series of novels, aren't they, by Stephen uh, Stephen Donaldson? Um, you ever heard of uh, a science fiction series called um, the uh, Chronicles of Thomas Covenant? I haven't. You got to check them out. They are nuts. I read them coincidentally. I read them years before I, I got into Metallica. So there's a writer, Stephen R. Donaldson, 
and he wrote uh, three trilogies uh, about a guy called Thomas Covenant, and they were called the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant 1, 2, and 3. And somewhere in there, there is the line about uh, the small lies that men, what is it, mislabel their lives, that, that, that is from that. Uh, so Cliff either borrowed it completely or he adapted it. Um, as to when he supplied that, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was a quote that he enjoyed or he liked or he read those books. I mean, he was, you know, he was into that kind of fiction. Yeah. Um, but no, those books are insane. So they're not heavy metal at all, but they're they're um, they're, they're amazing sort of fantasy uh, fiction. So uh, that's where that stuff comes from. Okay. Mm. So you know, I, I was talking to someone the other day about the whole Metallica thing and. I was thinking, you know, a lot about the fact that, you know, Cliff passed away. And, and I, I was really thinking, and, and I'm glad I'm talking to you about it to get your opinion on it. But I almost feel like if they had decided not to continue after Master, that they would probably be one of these bands that would be kind of a metal cult band, something yep. along the lines of like a metal church or something like that, but definitely not as revered as they are today. No, uh, I agree. I mean, they, they would have been crazy to pack it in at that point because they were on an upward upward trajectory. Um, that tour with Ozzy was was a complete career changer for them. Um, so to 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 pack it in after that would have been a mistake, and I'm very glad they didn't. I don't think it was in any way disrespectful or anything like that. They, they, Cliff would never have wanted them to stop. Um, but also, as as you know, many people have, have, have conjectured. I think Lars and James, you know, pretty much wanted to take over the band. You know, I mean, they 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 those two and Cliff were running the show. Um, Without Cliff there, they were perfectly capable of running the band themselves, right? As as, as they've subsequently shown, um, so there was just no reason for them to stop. Uh, uh, you know, they were they were they were. I don't want to say they were peaking, but they were they were full of energy and full of creativity, and uh, and they put in five or six or seven years into the band. They weren't going to walk away at that point. Right. Uh, but I agree with you. I think had they done so, uh, Metal Church is probably a good analogy. Actually, they would have been. Uh, they, they they might have been like Anthrax, I guess. You know, maybe the big four bands would have been approximately the same profile that they have now. Uh, maybe not. Who knows, really? I mean, God, the fact that any band stays together for as long, you know, for for thirty years, more and whatever, it's just a miracle to me. I, don't, I just don't know how they do it because it's hard. You know, it's, it's it's especially hard now, but it wasn't easy then. It's and called, uh, Joel, it's called making money. <laughs> but it is. But I think there comes a point when you either you've got enough money or you just don't. You think of an easier way to make money, you know? yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. no, anyway, look what you said earlier about how you didn't think they were going to make another record. Um, and no, I, th I thought they would. I think they might make one more now, and then that will be it. Um, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. I'm sure they've got some interesting projects coming up. The whole reissues thing that they've done recently, um, the book. You know, they've had those festivals and films that didn't do well, but at least it shows that they're doing stuff outside outside the, the standard kind of album tour, album tour. Um, so I'm always interested to see what, what the, you know what they're going to do next. And this album, I'm really I've got high hopes for it. Um, I'm realistic though, you know. I mean, I I, <laughs> I still remember thinking uh, when I heard "Load," my God, and that's what now 20, 20 years ago. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you know, when they did "Death," you know, they just the promo machine was just cranked sky high on that too. And, and mm. I think this one is scaled back so much more than that, which is. I think actually better for them to just yeah. kind of yeah. kind of do it and keep it a little more low key because how you were going to ever live up to the hype that they did for Death Magnetic it just it wasn't going to happen. No, I just don't think it was strong enough, you know. Um, but it, it would have had to. Have, you know, I, I just briefly. I mean, I, I I wish that had been a stronger album with some better editing and some more balls to the to the riffs. 
you know, a bit more speed and a bit more aggression and a bit more kind of a sense that it was all going to come off the rails. It was quite a sort of considered polite album, wasn't it? And uh, I, that's not what you want, you know. You want to go, you want to go and listen to Disposable Heroes on Puppets and listen to a band that is on full, full adrenaline and full, no compromise kind of uh, a mission, you know, to conquer. That's what you want to hear from Metallica. And, you know, they're, they're in their 50s now, aren't they? You know, they're not going to be full of anger and full of rage and a desire to conquer the world anymore, which is fine, but you still want to hear something with a little bit of power to it. So let's hope, let's hope that's what we get. Right. Hmm. And, and, you know, final question, Joel, I, I have to ask it. What's your favorite track off of Puppets? Oh, man. Well, it was, it's... I know, it's, it's a shitty question. I know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's either Disposable Heroes. Um, the, I'm trying, it's always a toss-up between that one and, uh, and Damage Incorporated. I mean, those, those two songs are just so, so evil, you know, the, the, the depressing kind of... Not depressing, that's the wrong word. Uh, the kind of uh, um, malevolent kind of spirit around those two records. Hetfield's vocals. I mean, either of those two, I'm going to ch- pick those two. I can't, can't pick one out of those two. I can listen to those two songs over and over again. They're just amazing. The peak of Thrush Metal. The peak of Thrush Metal apart from peak of, the, the peak of Slayer, I'd say. And it's yeah. interesting, too, you pick those because Damage Inc. is pretty much well-baked in before they ever even hit uh, Sweet Silence. And then Disposable Heroes is like basically the track that they actually write while they're recording it, too. So exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, the, the structure of, of Heroes is not complex. It's, it's the same... Uh, EGF sharp thing that they did in uh, Eye of the Beholder on the, on the next time after that. So they're, they're fond of that chord progression, but it really works. You know, it's, it's uh, no, and it's, that song is great. I, w- I was playing bass with a Metallica tribute band in Italy a couple of years ago, and um, we did that song. And uh, <laughs> you need some serious, serious chops to pull it off. And uh, it, it gave me a newfound respect for those guys. You know, they were so, what were they, 24 or something when they, when they, um, 23. Yeah, 23. I think Cliff was 24 and they were like 23. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's, that's incredible to me, you know. Yeah. But, anyway. Joel, did you see um, Metallica a few years ago when they played Puppets from front to back? I know, I missed that tour. I saw oh. them after that. Unbelievable. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I interviewed uh, Rob Trujillo uh, at that time and I asked him how it was going and how he, um, and how he was approaching Cliff's parts, because they hadn't done a Ryan, I think, live. And uh, he had sat down and worked on that with, with great diligence to get it right. And uh, no, I, I, I didn't see it, but uh, yeah, I hear it was amazing. I'm really, really glad it, it must have been incredible to see. Yeah, well, they, they, you know, like they, they pick out disposable heroes. You know, it's coming, and it, it still is like, holy yeah. shit, they're playing disposable heroes. Well, they did play that a couple of times before that uh, and after that uh, on a couple of dates. Uh, the first time I, I saw them do it was at. They played at Twickenham, didn't they? In something like 2004, I want to say. So it's, you know, and uh, they, um, I had interviewed uh, Rob before the show, so I'd seen the set list, and I knew it was coming. <laughs> uh, after one of their less entertaining songs that they they went and ripped into Disposable Heroes, and they made it available for download afterwards. So it's just incredible to hear, and the, the the picking speed is just nuts. And Hetfield nails it every single time. Uh, anyway, so probably now, now we talked about that song so much. Probably that is the song that I would take, you know. But um, uh, the whole album's just flawless, you know. You, you cannot deny it. All right, Joel. Well, I think we've taken enough of your time for a Sunday, but uh, thanks, for, <sighs> thanks for coming on once again. And uh, hopefully, we'll talk to you again uh, November, December timeframe. Uh, that would be wonderful. It's great to speak to you. I, I love speaking to you guys. So, uh, so please do stay in touch. Awesome. All right, Joel. Have a good rest of the night. Cheers for now, fellas. All thanks right. a lot. No problem. All right. Bye. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs> And 
And there you go. There is our conversation with Joel MacGyver, one of our uh, all-time favorite guests. And be sure to check out all of Joel's books, including his uh, cool ones he's done on Metallica. That's what we talked about with about uh, Cliff Burton, To Live Is To Die, as well as his other one about Metallica called And Justice For All. So it's time to move on to our second guest of episode 300. That would be the producer of Master of Puppets, Fleming Rasmussen, of course, the guy who's also rode the boards for Ride the Lightning and Injustice for All. So who knows more about talking about Metallica in the studio in the classic days of Master of Puppets than Fleming. And of course, once again, big shout out to Joel MacGyver for putting us in contact with Fleming. Hello, Fleming. Yeah. Hi, it's uh, Richie from Focus on Metal. How are you? Hi, Richie. I'm fine. Uh, you watching the game? Not yet, no. I uh, haven't turned it on yet. Has uh, it started? Yeah, we haven't had any games. So we've, the power just came on about 10 minutes ago. Okay. Yeah, we've had no power here for about six hours. <laughs> I think the game starts about now, actually. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to turn it on when we're done. Yeah, we're um we're just outside of Boston, so uh, unfortunately we're Patriots fans. What's there's a big storm over there or what? This morning, yeah. Well, oh god. Yeah, but like rain or oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, rain, thunder, and lightning. Oh yeah. <laughs> cool. So, yeah, so the, the okay. NFL the NFL season starts, of course, and the power goes out, which is a uh, which is there great. So I'm here with my co-host Scott. Hey Fleming, good to talk to you. Hi Scott. Uh, before we get into it, can we um, can we go a little bit for further back? And can you tell me how Metallica came to work with you in the first place? Well, uh, the story is that um, Metallica did kill them all, and they needed. They thought they could do a better job of it, uh, sound wise and production wise. So they uh, they looked for uh, studios and were looking for studios with good in-house engineers. And uh, I know for sure that Kurt loved what I'd done with Richard Blackmore's Rainbow. Mm-hmm. They also wanted to do it in Europe because the dollar was really strong then, so they could get twice the amount, uh, twice the studio time for the same amount of money as they could get in in the states. So uh, that's why they contacted me. Okay. And I hadn't heard Kill Em All at all. I didn't even know the band existed. And despite what a lot of people think, I uh, hadn't heard about Lars either. <laughs> so it's not like me and Lars were all friends or anything. I didn't know who the hell he was. So, and that's, and they called me and I said, yeah, I'll do it. And, they came and you know that that was the beginning. Yeah, what we did ride? Yeah, what did you think of the music when you heard it first? Because it's a lot different to black to, to the stuff you were probably doing. Yeah, I loved it because uh, I I I really uh, liked the energy and the power and the commitment that was in in, in what they did. Yeah. So when when you did the Ride the Lightning album, what lesson from that with working with Metallica did you say, right, I'm definitely going to bring this into Master of Puppets? Uh, 
Um, we had kind of developed a way of doing things, um, kind of working out the songs, getting the tempos right and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And also we had like a huge ware- warehouse kind of looking uh, back room where we recorded the drums. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why the band decided to do Master of Puppets in, in Copenhagen as well. Because we're more or less, uh, Master of Puppets is more or less a refinement of what we did on Ride the Lightning. Um, it's, it's Ride the Lightning, just, um, you know, better. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, sound-wise and, and, you know, so, so yeah. Yeah. Did, did, did... Uh, I would say everything we learned from that very first experience with, uh, with Ride the Lightning, plus we got to know each other. Um, we we use that to make uh, master puppets, you know, what what it turned out to be really 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 epic. Yeah, and do you do you remember any of the ideas from master puppets uh, floating around when you did the ride the lightning album? Do you remember hearing any of the riffs? No, I mean uh, when we did ride the lightning, um, I don't think uh, they had. I, I think they were actually missing a song or two. I know for a fact they actually wrote one song in the studio in a weekend because they were actually living in the studio because they didn't have much money. <laughs> so we let them bunk in the, in the upstairs in the studio. Okay. Uh, and plus they lived at friends' apartments in Copenhagen. So they actually wrote one of the songs in the studio. So so all the Master Pub songs uh, came later. Okay. They came the next year or so. One of the things that was like a big hallmark people always feel with your production of Metallica is just that solid rhythm sound that you were able to get that's, you know, pretty much lays the foundation for everything and, and made everything stand out. Now, is that something that you kind of really developed as you were doing Ride and Into Master, or was that something you always Yeah, kinda, yeah, uh, well, yeah. No, what happened was that when, when, uh, when we when we was starting out with Ride, um, they were touring Europe, and at one point, a week before or two weeks before the, uh, we started recording uh, they had all their equipment stolen and uh, James had uh, a modified Marshall amp and he really liked the sound on that but of course nobody had taken the time to, to note what the modifications were so what we did was I called everybody I knew in Denmark and they brought their Marshalls so we had like nine, nine to twelve Marshall stacks in the studio, and James would like try them out to to see to see which uh, to see which he thought sounded best. Because because James really liked the guitar sound on Kill 'Em All, and and you know I didn't think it was bad either. But you know we kind of beefed that up more or less, uh, and and we took that. Oh, plus, you know, I had some some mic ideas and stuff, you know, stuff like that that you do to to achieve what you want, and studio stuff. Um, and and we kind of took that a step further with Master, because um, what happened by then was that they'd gotten a boogie endorsement, so they got these boogie amps that we needed to use for the studio, and. I thought they were really crappy and sounded like shit. So I fucked a lot around with them. Uh, and, and you know, and we got the sound from Master, which I think is pretty good. Oh, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, you know, 
But yeah, we worked a lot on that, and I'm more or less uh, kind of, you know, I tweak more knobs than James, obviously. <laughs> so uh, and on um, and on Master of Puppets, I I even inserted like a studio type parametric EQ in the in the insert loop at the back, so I could sit in the control room and, and fuck around with the sound and actually EQ, you know, through the whole setup. Yeah. yeah. So if I thought we needed high end, I would boost the, I boosted on that EQ instead of doing it on the treble mm. on the amp. Cause, cause that would fuck with, cause every time you, you turned a knob on one of those amps, everything would change. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you could sometimes, you know, turn the treble up and you'd get more low end. It was really fucking weird. So it took us a couple of days to get used to those amps, but you know, we we got a good thing going on, and we just stuck with that and just did minor modifications on it. Yeah, yeah. No, the, the magic of parametric EQs that you can just do amazing sculpting with those things. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't remember how much I did, but I felt documented in all my notes, mm. which I obviously still have. Yeah, no, no. Uh, but. But some of them are posted online, so that's you know like the big Metallica guitar, uh, guitar freak thing on uh, on Gear Sluts. It's mm. there's like thirty some thousand viewers on that. Now Fleming, when when they released the Black Album, they released all their demos as B sides, and they were like half formed songs with hardly any lyrics and all that. Now when the band presented the songs to you for master, were they in the same form? No, they were pretty. Uh, they were pretty finished. Uh, both Master and Ride, uh, no, and and Injustice, they did pretty elaborate demos. And I mean, in the days I worked with them, they did pretty elaborate demos in in uh, in Losses to Rush. So all of it was more or less laid out the way it was supposed to be recorded. I mean, we we probably changed some stuff during it, but you know, it's, it's it was more or less cosmetics because you know the mainframe of the songs were uh, were pretty much there when we started. Okay, and how how um, open were they to your input to changing the songs a little bit? Because you hear all the stories with them with Bob Rock and the arguments they had. Were they more open with you? Uh definitely, yeah. Because because um, while they were younger. And and you know every album when I recorded with them every album sold more and more and more they were you know on the, on the up 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 everything sold more they got they got more and more people to the concert so we saw this positive vibe that just kept going and and you know once they made the black album that more or less peaked uh, in terms of record sales for sure. Um, but you know, after that, it was the, that hard struggle to stay on top and being innovative and all that. that everybody always was slacking everybody for. Um, so uh, they were pretty. I mean, they were they were pretty open minded. They obviously had the last word, but uh, you know, I'd suggest stuff. They would also suggest stuff I knew wouldn't work, and you know. What I normally do is, is I let them do it once, and then they they, they find out it's crap, and they do <laughs> the next time. <laughs> That's normally the way I work, because it, it's a lot easier. You know, once they found out it sucks, you go, well, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> 
but yeah, no, they were now. It was it was a pretty. I mean, Master of Puppets was a pretty easy session in the in the sense that we were fucking just you know we're just banging it in there. Mm, yeah, and it was pretty positive all the way through. Yeah, and I, I feel you. It's, I mean, it's it's probably hard to say that that Master of Puppets sounds positive, but it was definitely making a positive vibe. <laughs> We were we were at least pretty sure where we were going. It was like everybody was talking in the same direction, and that was really really nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, was it uh, was it hard to uh, to actually hand that album off to have Michael Wagner finish it off? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, but you know it was a necessity because I was out of time. Mm. We, I, we, I was supposed to have mixed it. I mixed right, mm. uh, and. The time we were supposed to use to record and mix it, we spent recording it. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. I was uh, fully booked. Yeah, because I would, I would wonder how that would have turned out if you'd mixed it. Because that's one, one comment you hear a lot is the fact that that most people always feel that Ride was actually mixed better than Master, even though Master's more of that iconic album. Uh, well, yeah, I've, I've never given it any thought since that was just the way it developed. Yeah, I for sure would like to remix all the albums today, but I'm pretty sure there's a lot of guys out there who wants to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I, I probably don't have that by myself. No. Yeah. So Fleming, when the band went into record, uh, do you remember which song you started with and what made you pick that one to record first? Oh, that's a really good idea. I can't seriously can't remember. Yeah. Could be in my notes, maybe. If I had the tapes, I could see cause there's dates, dates on all the tapes. Yeah. I'm pretty sure when we get the box and the book, because there's a Master of Public book coming out, like the one with Ride, mm -hmm. but they obviously postponed that because now they're putting out the new album. It was yeah. supposed to come out sometime this fall, but they can't, you know, pushed it till the spring. Yeah, as I say, there's no point in them competing with themselves. <laughs> yeah, no. A lot <laughs> over the years, a lot of people have talked about how great a bass player Cliff Burton was. But you, you had, yeah. you were able to like hang with him and everything. Can you tell us a little bit about Cliff Burton, the person? Uh, he was a really easy, you know, easy person to like and to hang out with. He was the kindest man in the world. And, uh, you know, he didn't say much, but when he did, everybody listened. Mm. And he had, you know, he had his opinions about, about stuff. Um, he was, uh, I really liked him. And mm. um, it was pretty, it was a really bad day today. I heard the news about him dying. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Um, it, he was, you know, I I I seem to remember that on on uh, ride because he didn't like headphones. Uh, we put a pair of speakers in in the main room and had you know his bass amp in another room so he could play to like a almost a PA kind of yeah system. <laughs> so I'm just checking right now to see if. What's it saying here uh, about the uh, about the running order? Well, battery was definitely not first because I can see what tape they're on. 
battery is on tape three, master is on tape four, the thing is on tape six, sanitarium is on tape six, disposable heroes on tape two. So we pro, I mean, uh, the first, uh, actually the first song we always did with Metallica was the cover songs. Mm. Okay. Uh, and that's actually a really good idea. We mm. did the, these two covers, and and for this album, it was, let me see what it says, it was The Prince and Green Hill. And we were supposed to do a song called Money, but we we scrapped that and did Green Hill instead. So that was the songs we started with, because, you know, they were just B-sides and cover songs. Okay. So you know, once we'd done that, all the all the sounds would have been tweaked in. So we didn't start with all the you know the good stuff with a crappy sound. Yeah, which is a really actually a really good idea. Yeah. So the first song we probably recorded must definitely be uh, Disposable Heroes. Oh, nice. Think. That's probably my favorite song on the record. I yeah, that's, and that's pro. That uh, you know, it's, I you know, even if I started thinking about it. It would be impossible for me to to do that to remember that. Yeah. Was there was there any yeah. track was there any track Fleming on the album? Like, can you think of one that was really easy to record, and was the one that was a real painstaking one to do? Um, not really. No. Okay. And we did money. Money. We scrapped that. Then we did the Prince. Yeah. So yeah, that's it. Disposable heroes. There you go. That's it. That's the first one we did. Okay. <laughs> um, no, not really. Um, they all more or less just you know came out the way we wanted it. Yeah. Well, the, you were saying earlier on they probably had the demos more or less down anyway at that stage. They were pretty much down there, yeah. and you know, um, it was uh, most of this session was 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 uh, you know getting the good sound, you know, talking things through, getting it done. Mm-hmm. And it was mainly just work then, you know, and everybody knew that, I mean, we'd just look at each other and know, well, that was it. That was good. Yeah. So, it was It was really great. Yeah. So, like, th- there's no secret that at that time, th- they, liked, uh, they liked to go out partying. Were you someone who tried that, rein them in, or did you actually join them? Uh, no. Uh, in all the four months we recorded Master Puppets, I never went out drinking with them once. Because... Um, we were more or less working like solid. Mm-hmm. So, so when if if I was working with Lars and if the other guys were out drinking, because we were doing this at night, we were starting like at at you know seven in the evening and continuing till uh, it's like four or five in the morning. Wow! And they would all meet up at uh, at my place at about six. And and my wife and my sister, we were living in the same house. They'd cook them dinner, so they got like a big, good, solid meal mm-hmm. before we started. And then we'd head to the studio, which, which was like five minutes walk from where I lived, and we'd just bang it out all night. And so, so if they were out partying, it was definitely not with me because I was you know we're working most of the time I took I gave one day off in December to go to like a regular Danish Christmas uh, dinner kind of thing where you get hella drunk but you know 
they probably just went boozing when I went boozing. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Uh, no, no. I mean, um, we we were so busy, and it's been like that on all the albums I've done. That all the partying they've been doing, they've been doing that without me because I always had one of them in the studio when everybody else went out and got drunk. Okay. So I've been going out with them, you know, at gigs and if they were in town for something else. We had some serious nights then, yeah, sure for sure. But, you know, not not when um they're pretty focused when they go in the studio. They at least they were then. Mm-hmm. I can't say what it's like now, but I would think it's it's about the same. Okay. Um it's also because, you know, a studio costs money. Mm-hmm. Going drunk into the studio, just hoping to get shit done is like a really bad idea. <laughs> so, so yeah, no, they were pretty focused. Uh, there was none of that. We'd like when we were done at four or five in the morning, we'd sometimes sit down and play some poker and drink some beers. Uh, okay. Cliff loved playing poker, so, you know, that was... That was pretty nice. Yeah, just I just want to swing back to Cliff just for a second, Fleming. A lot of people have said at the time that he he was the one with definitely the most varied influences in the band that he was getting into REM and all these type of bands. Did you ever sit down and talk <sighs> to him about that? No, not really. Um, he, as I say, he was really friendly, but he was also you know kind of quiet and letting letting us get on with the work. If we had ideas, we'd always swing it by Cliff and he would bring his opinion. Uh, we would listen for sure. Mm. Um, but no, not nothing like that. Just, you know, just regular talks. We, no, we never got into any of that, mm. unfortunately. Would have loved that. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people would have. The, um, when you <laughs> oh, guys, yeah. <laughs> when, uh, when you guys were recording now, what, were you trying to take on the typical path of get the whole band in together first, get some good drum sounds, get drum tracks down, and then build on top of that? Or, or what was yeah, kind of the recording regimen you did? That was, that was the way we did it, yeah. yeah. Uh, get the band in, you know, play as much as they could, you know, get a good drum track, or at least something that was so stable that we could kind of dub on it mm-hmm. and six bits. So, and then we'd go rhythm guitars. I'm a firm believer, especially in heavy metal, I'm a firm believer that you should do the guitars before you do the, uh, the bass. Because hmm. the way you play a riff on a, on a rhythm guitar is, is much tougher and nicer than when you play it on a bass. Yeah. And 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 all, most often the, the, the riffs are written on, on the guitar. So, you know, instead of, you know, the, we'll do the bass, then we'll do the drums, then we'll do the guitars kind of thing. I always waited to do the uh, bass till all the rhythms and most of the harmonies were done, hmm. which worked perfectly with the with the bass player like Cliff, because you know he would kind of go off on what he heard. Sure. Cliff was the kind of person that if you if you gave him crap monitor, he would play like shit, and if you gave him good monitor, he would play like oh, like a dream. Right. So yeah. So we worked a lot on his monitor, so he was comfortable. Yeah. Now, final question for me, Fleming, before we let you go. Like th- this album, Master of Puppets, is probably regarded as one of the best metal albums of all time. Is is? Do yeah. you think that's the best album you've ever done? It's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, normally, if people ask me, I think the best 
album uh, uh, ever I've done is normally the one I'm working on right now because <laughs> it's where I focus all my energy. Yeah. But you know, stepping, getting a couple of steps back, uh, I would say that it's it's at least the most important album I've ever done. It's it's a really well sounding album and it's really well produced. It's it's definitely way up there in my top three. <laughs> And it's probably sitting on number one spot, yeah. I kind of, uh, it kind of varies with my mood, which one I think is the best. But, you know, the three Metallica albums I did are definitely up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's been a few good albums in there. Mm. Yeah, it's a couple of, a couple of good yeah, albums. Yeah, and I'm still working, yeah. Yeah, that's, I'm still that's at great. It. Yeah. That's great. I just had, like, a bunch of Navajo Indians, you know, Native American Navajos. Just recorded an album with them that I'm mixing right now. So yeah, just kind of they just happened to just drop by Copenhagen and just no 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 <laughs> well yeah you know, you know the internet yeah actually well actually yeah we uh, well what happened was that they contacted me on the internet I heard the demos and thought yeah that we need to work on that and I went over I actually went to Arizona to the Navajo Nation for a week hmm. and we flew back to the studio together and started recording. Wow. Yeah. So they lived there for like two, two and a half weeks, and the album was recorded. Nice. So nice. yeah, and you know, with all the trouble there's up in Dakota and the pipeline stuff like that, um, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I know I know a lot about you know, native problems, dude. So just ask me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll, yeah. it's, uh, we really appreciate you taking a little bit of your time out from uh, from the game on Sunday and uh, talk to a couple of guys from uh, from Boston to talk about the Master Puppets. And uh, I'm sure you must. Yeah, be... I haven't turned the game on yet. Uh, uh. It, it's you know, so I'll go in and see how far we are. It's probably <laughs> have started now. What are you Fleming? Are you a Giants or a Cowboys fan? Well, um, the thing is, I'm. I don't have like one team. I have teams that I really like and one team that I really hate. Uh, but you know, in in this case, I would say the Giants. But um, when I started watching American football over here, uh, it was the 49ers with uh, with Rice and what's his name, uh, Montana. Oh, Joe Montana, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was they were the shit. So I'm I'm a really big 49ers fan as well. There's okay. a few teams I really, really like. Giants are one of them. Okay. Actually, I, th- I thought Dallas Cowboys were pretty good too. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's just going to be fun. All right, Fleming. Well, we'll leave you going. Enjoy the game. And uh, thanks for finally uh, talking to us. We really appreciate it. That's cool. Glad we can make it through the thunderstorm and everything. Yeah, I'm sure you hear this a lot, but uh, Master of Puppets is a magnificent record. I'm just saying that personally. Dan, thanks for uh, thanks, thanks for doing your work um, on that. I'm pretty proud of it too. So, yeah, thanks. Okay. All right, Fleming. Cool. Thanks right, again. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right, I think Richie put it best when he's talked about it at the beginning of the show when he said, we just talked to the guy who mixed Master of Freaking Puppets. Really wish we would have had more time to talk to a Fleming more in-depth about everything, and I'm sure he probably would have been up for it if uh, it wasn't for the game coming on. But again, that's the guy who mixed Master of Freaking Puppets. 
And also, as usual, big metal thanks to our pal Joel McGuire for coming back on the show once again. You can keep up with Joel on the net at joelmcgyver.co.uk. You can also hit him up at Facebook, facebook.com slash Joel MacGyver, as well as on Twitter, which is, again, twitter.com slash Joel MacGyver. And if you haven't done so already, you have to check out some of Joel's extremely well-written metal and rock biographies. So that is a wrap for the mighty episode 300 of Focus on Metal. And, of course, next week we'll continue on with our Master of Puppets exploration as we have Andy Galian come on board talking all about back in the day in the San Francisco scene. We had a very, very cool talk with Andy about all that good stuff. Plus, next week, maybe another special guest we might hear from, a blast from the past. You never know, something else might creep in there. And speaking of blast of the past, if you're wondering why we had uh, one and only Bob Nelbandian kick off episode 300 i say who better i mean after all bob's been a long time influence for all the stuff that we do great friend of the show just a great friend in general and obviously a huge supporter of metal but beyond that the real reason you got bob up front is because bob is one of those original guys when you talk about brian slagle and you talk about john quinarens and you talk about ron quintana and bill hale and Bob is right in that mix, too. Bob is one of those original guys hanging out with the band, seeing stuff, hanging out with Lars, all that good stuff. I mean, Bob has all those great stories. And, of course, one of the first guys to actually write about Metallica. And almost every damn Metallica book out there has got at least one Bob Nalbandian quote or mention in it. So, of course, you got to have Bob up front. So that is it. Episode 300 in the can, in your metal ear holes, done. And as usual, you can keep up with us at FocusOnMetal.net. That is where all of our past episodes reside. Go to the episodes page, scroll down, all kinds of stuff. They have 300 episodes worth of stuff. And if there's an episode up there that doesn't have a link, you can always shoot me an email at scott at FocusOnMetal.net, and I will do my best to have that put up for you. And also, you'll find a whole bunch of those episodes on both of our iTunes feeds as well. If you want to keep up with the show notes, news blog, all that stuff, that is at focusonmetal.blogspot.com. And of course, Richie's always on Facebook. I'm always on Twitter. But right now, I am about to mix this puppy down, close up the studio, and go and have myself a well-deserved beer. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal... Talk to you next week with episode 301 as we continue with Master of Puppets. And until then, remember... Focus on Master! Master! Everything else is insignificant. Master of Puppets. Duh, that's the title of the new album. Yeah. 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 How are you guys, huh? Um, <laughs> oh, do you know about Abbey Road and everything? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Master of Puppets, yes. Third Metallica album. Third Metallica album. Heard it once. Mm-hmm. So I got this morning the cassette to try to understand it. Yeah. Um, I could probably say right away without hearing what you're going to say afterwards. It's not the kind of album that you should listen to once and then make an opinion about. I know. Because it's so, I wouldn't say it's so complicated, but it's the kind of album that, so I tend to think that albums that um, that you really like the first time, really like, wow, that's great, you get tired of after about 10 listens, 
but the albums that last a long time are the albums that you hear new things and every time you hear them and then mm -hmm. when you've heard the album 10 or 15 times you really start to understand what the hell is really going on mm -hmm. so that's why when you say you've heard it once it's like yeah okay still here it's over go home